हलाई हलाई दिन बोझे जाए घिरने लोकाले History and Geography podcast, where you're invited to an audio tour of each of the world's 197 sovereign states. My name is Kiki. And my name is Brad. And as always, we, we are, are your hosts. hosts. <laughs> this week, our discussion is on the nation of Bangladesh. begin with some overall thoughts and our initial familiarity ratings before we did our research. Uh, I'll start. Please do. Um, gonna give myself a very firm one for Bangladesh because I knew that it existed and that's it. And I also knew that a great British Bake Off winner, what's her name? Anyway, she's from Bangladesh originally. Nice. She's super cool. I'm sure she's Nadia. Sweet too. Nadia. Okay, yeah. Nadia from Great British Bake Off is from Bangladesh. Um, and actually, a lot of uh, Bangladesh people live in the UK and they become uh, some of the makeup artists I follow on YouTube. So, oh, cool. Meaning, I thought, anyway, what about you, Brad? Uh, I'm also going to give myself a one. There's no, I mean, I could give myself a zero because I probably could find it on a map before about this episode. But other than that, I don't know very much. Yeah. So, firm one. I know where to go with up, no but up. So. And we're going to take that uh, to the next level, but why don't you uh, give us our snapshot before we get into the historical timeline? I would love to. Let's give a little snapshot about Bangladesh. Yeah, let's, so, let's learn a little bit. The oh. anthem, which we just heard about 20 seconds of, is called Amar Sonar Bangla, which means My Golden Bengal, and is also fits with this, the seal of Bangladesh. is this beautiful gold color. I really like it. Um, they have a national march called Notuner Gan, which means the Song of Youth. Um, English says, no turn, no tuner gain. <laughs> no tuner gain. Um, <laughs> the capital is, uh, is this Dhaka? Yeah, Dhaka. So Dhaka, okay. Capital is Dhaka. The official language of Bangladesh is Bengali. And this fits with the major ethnic makeup of the country, which has 98% of the population as of the Bengalis people. 2% are minorities. Um, as far as religion is concerned, 90 0.4% are of the Islamic faith, 85 are follow Hinduism, 0.6% Buddhism, and 0.4% Christianity. So it's a predominantly uh, Muslim country. We'll figure out why that is, uh, I'm pretty sure, in our timeline. Knowledge to come. Uh, the demonym of people who are from Bangladesh are the Bangladeshi or Bangladeshi? Yeah, and also Bengali comes up. Like This person is Bengali. So you can say that they're Bengali. Okay, yeah. cool. Um, the population, this is the eighth most populous nation on, on earth. It's not a very big country. This is uh, 162 million people, 951,560. So it's a lot of people. Yeah, and about the size of France is what I read. It's a very densely populated country. The area is 147, around there, 1,000 square kilometers, making the 92nd largest. So there's a little discrepancy there as far as like just the sheer amount of people there. Um, as far as the government is concerned, they are a unitary parliamentary republic. It's a very common style we've seen so far. The president is Abdul Hamid, and I've read a little bit that 
president is really ceremonial, like foreign kind of stuff. So the, who really runs the show is the prime minister, and that is Shi Kasina. Yes. And we're going to hear more about her from Kiki later. Uh, the currents they use in Bangladesh is the Taka. And then I'll have a little bit more about the geography. So it's a South Asian country that borders India, Myanmar. 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 Yeah, that was a cool dyslexia moment, though. Okay. Uh, Myanmar, uh, Nepal, Bhutan, and China. And here's an interesting fact. Uh, so the, the Bay of Bengal is directly to the south of Bangladesh. And their maritime ownership in that bay is just as large as their land area. So their maritime ownings kind of double their area if you don't if you count water. And that's why the world's largest delta. So I think the Ganges River also hits into the Bay of Bengal. Um, the country has 700 rivers and over 5,000 miles of inland waterways. They have a lot of water. They have highlands with evergreen forests, and those that's in the northeast and the southeastern regions of the country. Uh, Bangladesh has many islands. They even have a coral reef. They have the largest unbroken sea beach of the world, the Cox Bazaar Beach, and that's in the southeast. So that's fun. It's home to the Sundarbans, which is the largest mangrove forest in the world. And mangroves also have tons of biodiversity. This is a very bio... bio Biodiverse. Biodiverse country. Thank you. Remember those little um, goofy Irrawaddy dolphins from the Lao episode? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a lot of Irrawaddy dolphins Oh, in man, I Bangladesh. fucking love those dolphins. It's like Quagsire from Pokemon. I love them. I'm going to look um, at that. I'm going to look at a picture of one right now just to cheer myself up. Please do. Uh, the country's biodiversity includes a vast array of plants and wildlife, because that's what biodiversity means. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Including endangered <laughs> Bengal tigers. <laughs> I'm trying to look at these dolphins. <laughs> They're really cute. Um, Bengal tigers are the national animal there. Um, so because of these things, Bangladesh is widely considered to be one of the countries most vulnerable to climate change. Vulnerable? Vulnerable. Yeah. Vulnerable? <laughs> yeah. Vulnerable. It was just some really good, uh, uh, pronunciations. What's it? Enunciation? I'm trying my best. I'm not going to make fun of you anymore. I promise. Please do. Uh, natural hazards that come from increased rainfall, rising sea levels, and tropical cyclones are expected to increase as climate changes. Uh, each is seriously affecting agriculture, water, food security, human health, and shelter. It is estimated that by 2050, a three-foot rise in sea levels will inundate some 20% of the land and displace more than 30 million people. When you have these really dense urban, like, populated areas with a lot of concrete cover, like rainfall just doesn't send you nowhere to soak in, um, destroys levees, stuff like that. And then one last thing, we'll, we'll talk about this more during history, but Bengali is the official language. But English is sometimes used secondarily or like for official purposes, especially in the legal system. And the laws were historically written in English because of colonialization, which we'll hear about later. Um, so, you know, their constitution and laws now exist both in English and Bengali. Um, a lot of like upper, upper and middle class kids like in schools and stuff learn English too. Um, so, yeah, that's Bangladesh. Kind of a snapshot of the country. And I think Kiki's going to take us into history because there's a lot there. Yes, I sure will. Um, so I'm going to start with like a little message about how I did my research for this one. I did a little differently than in our other episodes. Uh, so Bangladesh as a country uh, was established in I think, 1971. So it's pretty recent, um, but the region uh, has historically been a part of both Pakistan and India. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of shared history there where like the Bengal region has been a defined region because of its its distance from other like cultural centers of India mostly uh, but so when I did my research for this one I actually started in the most recent history and worked my way back um, and then I'm going to tell it you know 
as history goes, but I'm going to try to put more emphasis on like the past hundred years because I think one of my personal weaknesses during this podcast uh, is that I'll do all my timelines and then in the next like last hundred years of history, I'm a little burned out. Yeah, because after 2000, the last hundred is like, I'm almost there. Yeah, because you think like, oh yeah, it's, it's going to wrap up soon, but um, in an age of extremely well-documented history that is all very relevant to what the countries are today, it's probably not the best thing. And I think also um, in the current state of Bangladesh, it's we can see going backwards in time how like the current conflicts started yeah. and how that makes but made Bangladesh unique. Um, so here we're starting in ancient history with all those notes. Yep. Bear with me; it may seem a little more sparse. Um, also, please tweet at us, uh, write us a review, or in the comments, and let us know if you would prefer to focus more on like ancient and middle histories or like more modern histories we want to hear from you we respond to what do you want to hear anyway so in the bengal region um there's evidence of people early as 700 bce especially the northern black polished ware people as a copper age uh civilization um and then modern day bangladesh was in the ancient kingdom of anga Linguistically, these people were associated with the Dravidian language, uh, like Kuruks, or Austroasiatic languages, which we remember from our Fiji episode, who those people are. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, these are also part of like larger language families, like Tibetan Burman, and they all settled in this little area. Little that's not this area, uh, and then the latest linguistic trend of this is Indic Bengali. Uh, we were not going to have a language armchair this episode but i will do my best to bring up the linguistics that happens if you guys are interested in that anyway so we know that there's people there some recorded history starts when alexander the great begins an invasion in 326 bce we know our boy a the g a the g but he's actually thwarted by the Gandhardai empire uh, which is an empire that lo- is takes up a good part of modern-day Bangladesh. Uh, so he's going to go, and then they put up a really good fight, and then A the G talks to his bro, and he's like, um, so I'm not quite sure uh, if we should keep doing this. And his, his friend's like, fuck no, let's get the fuck out of here. And, and, and <laughs> Alex is like, sounds about right. What a pussy with the guys. was. Yeah, he's <laughs> Alexander the less than mediocre when it comes to invading what a beta <laughs> yeah got him <laughs> alexander the cuck <laughs> anyway um and then it, around this time there's a great spread of buddhism under the Mauryan emperors uh and then from the fourth to sixth century the gupta kings of india spread hinduism to the region mm-hmm. Um, and when we get to our India episode, which I guarantee will be <laughs> at least a two-parter. That'll be a short episode, Kiki. <laughs> um, oh so we'll talk more about the Gupta, Gupta kings there because um, it's extremely relevant to the Indian history and the Bangladeshi history, etc. But under the Gupta kings, they reign from, you know, 4th to 6th century uh, CE. Hinduism gets a hold of the area, and, but Buddhism's still existing. And they kind of coexist um, in the Pala dynasty uh, up until the 11th century. Uh, and then it's just kind of like an, a, a phases of like some Buddhist control, but mostly Hindu control. Um, but they're, they're making it. They're doing fine. Religious tension is going to be a common 
uh, presence in this area of the world. I mean, probably, you know, like I said, most areas of the world. Oh, yeah. Uh, but I guess we see in our modern history, too, Buddhism kind of takes a second or third seat after Islam arrives, which we'll get to. Uh, and in this time, uh, we have a lot of unifying leaders also. So there's like some very large, powerful kingdoms, but there's also a lot of like splinter little kingdoms in the middle. And so when it comes to like creating the full regional presence, it doesn't super happen until a fourth, 14th century guy named Shamsuddin Elias Shan uh, unified all the principalities around there. The arrival of Islam. So as early as the ninth century, um, which we've seen in our other histories, especially like in Afghanistan, um, well, who, who was another? Yemen, I think, too. Ninth century is a big, powerful time for Arab traders. And you had that, um, like, the South Sudan had, like, that whole market yes. the trade that went into, like, the West Africa. Right. That's where we saw, too. Yeah. Um, so, ninth century, parts. Arab traders had already uh, brought some Islamic influence to Bengal. Uh, and then by 1200, Muslim invaders from the Northwest overthrew the uh, Sinus people who are living there. And the Muslim rule culminated in the Mughal dynasty. I've heard of them. Yeah, we've yeah. all heard of the Mughal dynasty. That also came up in our Tajik Tajikistan episode, mm -hmm. Afghanistan. Uh, we're seeing, we're going to see a lot of the Mughals here, and they are very powerful. Um, a cool thing, they didn't super care about religious influence as much. They did bring a lot of um, Muslim influence and a lot, a lot of Muslim settlers, and they did give like preference to Muslim people over the Hindu people for land grants and stuff. But they weren't trying to push the religion as much. They weren't trying to uh, establish as many missionaries. They just kind of wanted the land yeah. and the control and the power and the trade. So everybody was kind of getting along between at least the Hindus and the Muslims at this time. Uh, and this time for like 200, you know, around 200 years until um, our buddies, the East India Company and the English... probably too long of a musical break no it never gets old yeah but it's it's really pleasant to the ear i think <laughs> uh but anyway so emperor Aurangzeb, who ruled from 1658 to 1707 allows the east india company to establish a base in kolkata which uh some listeners may hear as calcutta but as an anglicization um and from what huh. i understand kolkata is the right way to pronounce it um and the sensitive way because more british imperialism am i right yeah so as the Mughal Empire is weakening, British influence increases until the battle at Plassey in 1757 between Roger, it was led by Robert Clive on the English side and then Mughal Nawal Siraj Uddala. Um, so he was a viceroy. You didn't really have to like emphasize that Robert Clive was part of the English side when the next guy's name was that. It well, was pretty obvious. Old, old Bobby over here is fighting for the, the, for the crown. <laughs> That's super rude, and I really I would appreciate if you let me just tell my timeline. <laughs> okay, sorry, keep going. Uh, we don't we don't know their lives, okay? That's true. Um, but anyway, so he was a Mughal viceroy, is defeated, and after this point, the British India Company gains more political influence, and they basically rule through like property rights and distribution. So they're giving land to their friends so that they can establish a very firm trade line to. England specifically. And it's actually like the resources from India 
Bangladesh and these areas that really fueled the uh, English Industrial Revolution because of those natural resources like wood, coal, spices, um, tea. Like when we say like British people love tea, it's because yeah. of colonizing India. Yep. So hopefully we all know that at this point. So with British influence, like the next hundred years are are generally like, let's uh, colonize the shit out of these people and exploit them. And then this time, like as a resistance movement, the Bengali Renaissance happens, and this was a time where Bengali poets come into prominence. Um, a lot of Bengali culture thrives because with colonization, especially like when we say like British colonizers are not, I guess, as brutal. Like they're not trying to completely wipe out Bengali culture. They just want to steal all their resources and make it as hard as possible for them to live and, and rise up. So arts and literature th start to thrive. Um, math scientists, artists, all really come to life during the Bengali Renaissance. And that's when we see a lot of like beautiful art and Bengali things come out of this time. Um, also, uh, in terms of like socio-political uh, movements, like things like women come into more prominence. I can't say like they have more power, but there's a lot of like British influence that says, hey, you can't subjugate women this way. Yeah. Um, so those are some of like, I guess if I'm saying the Western positives of colonialism is that like Western standards and gender roles are more imposed it's like yeah so i mean it's hard to say that's right or it's wrong and we'll just yeah. i'm sure there was still like a caste system and stuff yeah there was still a caste system but it's like challenging the caste system um based on western ideologies i would say so in 1905 comes um the first really and also i'd say like in the modernization of bangladesh that's what colonization did in these 200 years it gives them some modern systems like sewage and like bureaucratic structures that yeah. help to mobilize and move these people forward uh, with the Western Hemisphere. Probably trains and stuff, infrastructure too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So in 1905 uh, comes like in our modern Bangladeshi history at the initiative of Viceroy George Nathaniel Curzon. He was a British person too, Brad. George Nathaniel. Oh boy, um, George <laughs> Nick or George Nate. Um, so he decides that it would be easier to rule ba the Bengal region if it was divided in two. And he says, um, it's just based on, uh, you know, geography. And, real. But he really splits it in between, like, a Hindu side, uh, and he calls it, like, Western Bengal makes the capital Kolkata, um, and then the eastern side, which is prom prominently Muslim, and that capital is Dhaka. And... People are like, that's not very cool. Also, this yeah. region is notoriously hard to rule because it's kind of the, to the off side of India because the other major hub is New Delhi. Uh, and that's a fair amount of land in between the two. And so people are kind of like, it's there, but it's hard to make sure everything's happening. And with the different sides between Hindus and Muslims, they're like, eh, eh. if you can understand the meaning behind those grunts. <laughs> those were lightning grunts. Would you say that... Bangladesh is in the Indian subcontinent? Yes. Okay. okay. I would say that. I'm not an expert, but I, okay. I would say that just because, like, it's it was for so long a region of India. Yeah, okay. Um, I won't call it, like, the armpit, but, you know, if you, like, imagine, like, India has, like, arms going up this way. Yeah. It's right there. It's in the crook, yeah. So, this doesn't work, and I think 1911... They're like, fucking stop. Redivide us 
along the linguistic lines or yep. don't divide us at all. And then Preach. the the English like listen. They're like, fine, because we're sick of you fighting. You guys can be divided this way. Then things are okay ish. But then here comes like the creation of Pakistan. So there was like a lot, large amount of time where Pakistan and Indians, or, like the people in the Pakistani region and Indians, both under British rule, were like, there's some fundamental differences between us and we're sick of being together. And like England's like, okay, well, you can be two countries now. And then they're like, yeah, but what happens to, to Bengal, the area of Bengal? And they're like, you know what we're going to do? We're going to split it in half again. And then half is going to go to New Pakistan, and then the other half is going to stay India. Uh, wow. So it's like I was thinking of it kind of like um, after World War II, how Berlin was split between East and West Berlin within a whole Germany. Country in the middle, yeah. yeah but there's crazy. like whole countries dividing where the administrative centers are, especially when it comes to Pakistan and what is now known as what was it? It was East East Bangladesh, but then it was called East Pakistan. Yep. So that was what was in Bangladesh and there was like a whole India in between um, Pakistan the country and East Pakistan so and at this time also so this was in 1947 it was when Pakistan was created and Pakistan was super unstable as many new countries are there's a lot of political uprisings um, economic instability uh, and then this distance leads to a lot of estrangement and cultural differences between like of the province of East Pakistan and Pakistan itself, and there's a big language difference. So uh, the language of Pakistan is Urdu, and it's largely populated by the Punjabi people, mm-hmm. whereas Bengali Pakistans are the Bengali people, or Bengali Pakistanis, uh, and they speak Bengali. So there's actually a big... Sorry, you want to have a question? This is blowing my mind, because like, all they must have shared was the fact that they were Muslim. Yeah. And then, like... You can't really... How do you organize things when there's a whole country between you? That's like... And I was wondering, like, why sucks. would this be the way to do it? And I know it's like, it's probably about money. Um, but it really... I mean, it seems like it really sucked for the, the Bengali people who are just like, we've got no fucking say in yeah. this. Uh, and then the Bengali Pakistanis petitioned the Pakistani government to recognize Bengali as an official language of Pakistan. Yep. And Pakistan's like, mm, no. And then they're like, well... That's super uncool of you because you're using our resources. Most of the population of Pakistan lives in East Pakistan just because, like, you've got Punjabi people there, and that's where the administrative center huh. technically is. Because, I mean, it's more population dense. There's more people there. It's just more agricultural versus more uh, developing in urban regions. Have you ever seen the movie Gandhi with Ben Kingsley? Yeah, I did in high school. You know that, that huge scene where, like, Pakistan's formed, like, all the people have to, like, leave, like, Western India to, like, go to Pakistan because they feel like they're going to be persecuted if they stay in India because they're Islamic? Yeah. That must have been crazy. I didn't even know there was an East Pakistan at that point. Like, man, yeah, it's this is so complicated. Um, and, like, also the Bengalis were very motivated by Gandhi's movement, too, um, for, like, freedom against at least the British. <sighs> so, just, like, I, don't know, I have a lot of empathy for the people here who are just, like, you can't do that. And also, and in Pakistan, I call it, let's call it West Pakistan. So, like, they're having a huge problem with the Kashmir region in India, yep. still a, a huge conflict region. And the Bengali Pakistanis were like, we don't super care about that. Um, and yep. also, you're rendering us vulnerable because we're we have Indian neighbors and we need to get along with them. So, you're a skirmish on the literal like other side of India. Yeah. Indian neighbors, who they are 
because Western Ball, they're, they're, the Eastern Pakistan's pro- Pakistanis probably had more in common with the West Bengalis in India because yeah. that was literally the half their country. Yeah, and like imagine like having family on the other side of the border, stuff like that. Uh, so, and also the Pakistani army, um, the Pakistani thing is Liberation Army only had one division of Bengalis. The rest of it was Pakistanis. Yeah. So it's a, they're just underrepresented on all sides. So this is what brings us to the next uh, phase is the creation of Bangladesh. So in the early hours of March 26, 1971, there's a military crackdown by the Pakistani army. Because at this time, there's like people, a lot of uprisings, a lot of people being like, uh, enough is enough. Yeah. And then the Banga Bandhu Sheikh uh, Mujibar Rahman, uh, remember that name, uh, was arrested. Political leaders dispersed, fleeing to neighboring India, and then they organized a provisional government. But before he was arrested by the Pakistani army, uh, Sheikh Mujibur Rahman passed a handwritten note that contained the Bangladeshi Declaration of Independence. You're and fucking I will, me. It's awesome. I will read it to you because it's pretty short. But here's like, like the thing is the note also like took off. Like he just had to pass the note and then it got around quickly and then the, the Beng- Bengali people were like, yeah, yeah, yeah! Freedom, freedom! Pew, pew, pew! That's so awesome. Who do you hand the um, note to? Uh, guess what? I don't have that. No. But he passed it on, and that's what's important. And the Declaration of Independence is, This is Swadin Bangla Bitar Kendra. I, Mayor Ziaur Rahman, at the direction of the Bango Bandu Mujibar Rahman, hereby declare that the Independent People's Republic of Bangladesh has been established. At his direction, I have taken command as the temporary head of the Republic in the name of Sheikh Mujibar Rahman. I call upon all Bengalis to rise against the attack of the, by the West Pakistani army. We shall fight to the last to free our motherland. Victory is, by the grace of Allah, ours. Joy, Bangla. Mic drop. Yep, so he's just like, hey, bam, bam, bam. <laughs> Air horns probably at this time, too. They definitely existed. Uh, they were invented for this, I believe. So there, there was a war of independence uh, and a liberation army and a lot of, you know, tension and skirmishes, I think. It was actually, like, the largest surrender in history when, like, 200,000 Pakistani uh, soldiers uh, surrendered bloodlessly at a fight with uh, Indians. Because I think India was backing up Bangladesh at this time. Mm-hmm. China was backing Pakistan. America was backing, backing Pakistan. <laughs> Um, uh, Wait, and, we backed Pakistan. Yeah, Pakistan. Pakistan. So there was like a lot of fight on on Bangladesh to get recognition internationally, um, especially since like Pakistan seemed like to be where most of the trade was happening through. This is, is it called the War of Independence? Yeah. Okay. Don't quote me, but yeah. Okay. And so that's uh, formed the first provisional government. So the provisional government was formed in Mujibagnar. On the 17th of April, that's my dad's birthday, uh, 1971. So actually not really on his day of birth, but... One of them. Yeah, so yeah. Uh, it issued a proclamation of independence and drafted the uh, first interim constitution and declared equality, human dignity, and social justice as the fundamental principles. Pretty neat. And then we have the first um, actual administration. That's a Sheikh Mujib administration. And the, so we have the Awami League, which will come up in India too. Um, still a prominent political force today. They won the 1970 election in Pakistan, and they formed the first post-independence government in Bangladesh. So the Awami leader, his name is Sheikh Mujibur Rahman, became the second prime minister of Bangladesh in 1972, and is uh, regarded as the nation's independence hero and the founding father. Nice. Uh, he was a nation builder. 
uh, and built on secular Bengali national nationalist principles because we still have like a huge Hindu population yeah, and a huge yeah. Islamic population. So he's like, guess couldn't, what? We don't need to have religion in our government. Yeah, it couldn't be a theocracy at that point. And then Dr. Kamal Hussein uh, drafts the Constitution of Bangladesh, uh, laid out a liberal democratic parliamentary republic with socialist influences in 1972. Uh, this was kind of disrupted by a huge famine in 1974. So they're trying to mobilize, but when people are dying and starving, um, yeah, it's kind of hard to start a government. And then in 1975, a group of junior army rebels assassinated Sheikh Mujib and most of his family at a private residence in Dhaka. And this was a very auspicious day to report this podcast, actually, because uh, today is August 15th, 1975. So it is the uh, third... 38th anniversary. Uh, math. No, it's hard. Yeah, no. Yeah. Um, we've been out of school for... 48th. 48th anniversary um, of this happening, which is super sad. And the actually, like, remember uh, the prime minister of... Well, former prime minister, who we'll get to because she's kind of um, important. It's her birthday, too, so... Yeah. And they're talking about Khalid Azia. Anyway, speaking of Khalid Azia, her husband uh, was... The seventh prime minister, and but we'll we'll get to there. So the coup leaders installed Vice President Kandakar Mustak Ahmad as the Sheikh Manjeeb's immediate successor. Um, he's a very conservative guy, which you know it always happens after your first coup of a socialist liberal government. You're gonna have a very conservative guy in their place. Yep. Uh, he promulgated martial law, first martial regime of several. You saw that in um, just recently in Paraguay. Yes, we did. Uh, promulgated martial law jailed many prominent confidants of Sheikh Mujib, uh, including Prime Minister Tajuddin Ahmad. The leaders were executed on the 3rd of November, November 1975, so this was a pretty busy year. Ahmad reshuffled the leadership of the Bangladesh Armed Forces and paved the way for a military dictatorship. Uh, and then this guy, Zia, faced like 21 attempted coups against his government. Jesus. Uh, including by the Air Force. Uh, he was assassinated in 1981. And um, so this is like his widow, Khalida Zia. We'll see more of her later, but she becomes politically active after his assassination. So she comes in in like the next 10 years after 1981 as a huge opposition force to these military regimes and dictatorships and stuff like that. I don't even think I really properly introduced him, but Zia was the seventh prime minister. He was kind of a, um, I don't know, like a, I don't want to say a chill bro, but he was more liberal. Okay. And then after the Zia administration, it's succeeded by, and his uh, assassination, it was the Sattar administration. So that was his vice president, was Abdus Sattar. He was received by a popular mandate in 1981, uh, despite the allegations of him rigging the, the vote by his rival. Yeah. Um, his presidency was marked by infighting by the ruling uh, Bangladeshi Nationalist Party, which is also, again, an, another prominent political force. Is It's called the BNP. We'll see that again today. And then he... His vice president resigns. His cabinet is in shatters like everyone's changing jobs all the time a national security council was formed um, against anti-bengali muslim violence in northeast india and burma so their neighbors are causing some problems too and then 
Satara was suffering suffering from health problems, which uh, made an open door thing for the coup d'etat, which deposed him in 1982, and a civilian government. So this coup d'etat leads us to the dictatorship of Ershad. Ershad. And he's kind of a kind of a bastard, um, <laughs> but he does some like okay things because he's in power long enough for him to basically calm the shit down long enough to end military rule. Wait, I thought he was a military dictator though. So we'll get into it. So 1983, okay, yeah. I'll just, we'll just read my notes. Yeah. Ershad assumes a presidency. Political rep- political repression was rife under his martial law regime. However, the government implemented a series of administrative reforms, uh, particularly in terms of devolution. Uh, hmm. They divide this, the previously 18 districts of the country into 64 districts. So we're talking about like micromanagement. Yeah. Uh, and then in by 1989, the domestic political situation had quieted. Local council elections were considered by international observers to be less violent, more free and fair than in previous elections. But the opposition to Ershad's rule gained some momentum, uh, which escalated by the end of 1990 uh, by frequent general strikes, increased campus protests because students mobilized, yay students, public rallies, and a general disintegration of law and order. Then Ershad resigned from the pressure from the military and international community and the pro-democracy movement spearheaded by Khalida Zia, who was the widow of the former Prime Minister Zia. Ten years later, she comes back in. Yeah, so she comes in ten years later, as promised. Um, And her political rival, but at this time kind of ally, Shi Kasina, they engulf the entire country and draw in participation from the middle and upper classes. So Khalida Zia and Shi Kasina are are mobilizing people to be more politically active and and to have pro-democracy movements. This is the beginning of the 90s. And then the chief, chief justice, uh, Shahabuddin Ahmed, was sworn in as the acting president and the first caretaker government of Bangladesh. So there's a long period of just caretaker governments, which means like if, if there's a, a president or a prime minister who is quickly deposed or if there's accused of scandal, they'll just get out of there and then a caretaker government yeah. is installed. That's like one thing I learned from this one that you don't really see is like it's a like an interim... Yeah, like transitory. Yeah, like we're going to keep everything running while the politics are getting straightened out. Yeah. Then we have our first Khalida administration. So she was uh, elected as the first female prime minister in 1991. She's still a prominent political figure today, except for she's kind of in jail right now. Uh, And Uh yeah, so. So now we're going to get like in the past 20 years. This is when I'm going to go off book based on what I can figure out. Which I know might seem like sloppy, but we've also talked about like the the more recent it is, the more detail there is, True. And, and everybody like I mean it's opinionated news, so I'm just going by the basics. Um, so to give you a preview, the first Khalid administration goes from 1991 to 1996. 1996, second caretaker government, then the Hasina administration from 1996 to 2001. Um, this is Sheikh Hasida, who is the daughter. Um, of the previous uh, Sheikh Hasida. So they're both from, Khalida and Hasina are from political families, and they're both ladies, which even if, you know, politics are bad, it's kind of cool. Then uh, the second Khalida administration from 2026 said that. And a fourth caretaker regime from 2006 to 2008. And then so it's currently, regimes. yeah, then currently a Hasina administration from 2009 to the present. 
So it's a volleyball between Hasina and Khalida in the Bangladeshi government, plus these caretaker regimes, which you think objectively doesn't look like it's providing a lot of stability for the Bengali people uh, because your government's flip-flopping between two main characters and these caretaker governments that basically just keep everything afloat. I guess it would depend on how diametric, diametrically opposed Hasina and Kalita are. That's like, true. Does like does Hasina going to Kalita mean like funding gets cut for schools? Like for I mean, hypothetically, I have no idea. But like, mm-hmm. and it has all changed, or is it like just a little bit of bureaucracy? I have no idea. Well, let's get into that. Uh, so Kalita's first deal is basically uh, stabilizing. And getting back down from these military dictatorships yep. and uh, investing in private industries. So she um, feels that like her plan is to basically privatize everything and encourage private investments to get the country out of the deep, deep economic problems left by the 30 years. Good idea, Reagan. <laughs> it is the early 90s. <laughs> <laughs> Holy shit, really, yeah. Uh, and then her government focuses on improving the country's educational systems, expanding economic opportunities for women. Uh, however, in 1991, there was a fucking huge cyclone oh, that killed 130,000 people. She, no, Jesus Christ. Causing $2 billion in damage. So, kind of off the bat, she's a fuck. Uh, in 1996, she wins a second term. But it, her victory was tainted by an opposition-led boycott of the election, saying that she cheated, that she rigged it. Classic, classic move. <laughs> it, it's, it's easy to call incumbents you don't like for rigging things. Yeah, it's, um, yeah. So, and then, uh, oops, sorry. So, lots of wave, uh, protests and strikes. So, she resigns the following month after her, uh, being uh, elected again. So, then we pass into the... Hasina, first Hasina thing, and this administration. Was, administration is what they are called, um, who is associated with the Awami Party. Uh, that was like the the leader of the the opposition and the yeah. protests and everything. So she becomes the first the prime minister, and her whole thing is uh, she signed a thirty year water treaty with the Ganges in India. She from what it looks like, it's pretty buddy-buddy with the Indian administration. Um, she opens the government to the telecom industry, uh, and then like, and she allows uh, telecom to go to the private sector because previously it was only owned by the government. And in 1999, she starts the new industrial policy, so she wants to strengthen private industry and encourage growth. So she doesn't actually, like, she kind of picks up where Kalita leaves off in terms of privatizing the government. While you were saying that last thought, I just had to look up what Awami meant. And in Urdu, it means common people or general public. So it's like the public party. Oh, okay. okay. I just had to know. No, I'm so sorry. glad you did sorry. because that's something I should you. have done. Okay, sorry. Um, then she runs again. So this is Hasina. Hasina runs again in 2001. She wins 40% of the popular vote. The Awami League wins 62 seats in parliament. Um, and then Hasina runs again. But she loses to... Kalita. So we jump back into the Kalita line. Uh, and then is she regains power. So Kalita gains power. She says she's going to eliminate corruption and terrorism. Uh, but both of these things remain problems throughout the second term. So in the end of 2006, she steps down, passes the authority to the third caretaker administration, 
which goes to, as we've heard from 2006. But she was just being a caretaker. To party. 2008, yeah, the, the caretakers. That's like, like as a as an MPA student, I'm like, I would be the caretaker. I would hope. America had caretakers. That oh, that'd be interesting. Um, sorry, it's the fourth caretaker regime. How dare we? So with this political crisis, uh, President Ayyubuddin Ahmed assumes the responsibility of chief advisor, uh, and then. But then he's also accused of acting under the influence of the BNP because he's supposed to be more neutral. And then the state of emergency was, he declared a state of emergency in 2007. Uh, can't see why. Uh, well, I, th- I think there's some pro- stuff about pro- student protests here. Yeah, I mean, there's, um, no one's happy. Um, but anyway, so during this time, a military back caretaker government uh, starts an anti-corruption drive, which seems like you could create a lot of problems with an anti-corruption drive. It seems like that's a pretty loose term. Um, and you can arrest uh, over 160 politicians, businessmen, bureaucrats, um, including both, both Khalida Zia and Sheikh Hasina. I hope they, they, they shared a cell. <laughs> no, That'd be like, fun. It'd be like the latest season of Orange is New Black. <laughs> <laughs> um... <laughs> <laughs> so, like, um, I just, it, this is, I'm not laughing because this is obviously probably pretty devastating to the Bangladeshi people. No, it's a serious, serious historical event. But, like, you think, like, these are two, like, the two main political rivals being arrested. Eh, it's just a funny image to see them put together. Yeah. Um, and also, Khalid's two sons are arrested. Student protests at Dhaka University demand the restoration of democracy in 2007, um, but they were suppressed by a curfew. <laughs> Rude. And then Khalida and Hasina were released in 2008. So this was in a two-year state of emergency. And then there's an election in 2008 that saw a landslide victory for the Awami League-led coalition, but also included a party called the Jatia Party. Then we have the Hasina administration, because we know Hasina is associated with the Awami Party, and that's from 2009 to now. The current administration has a huge anti-terrorist uh, crackdown. They're dealing with ISIS also. Yep. Um, things like seeing uh, Rohingya in na- neighboring Myanmar. This is affecting Bangladesh too. Uh, and then within two months of assuming office, so this is in 2009, Asina's second government faced a BDR mutiny. So the opposing party provokes tensions within sections of the military. Uh, she, they tried to uh, mutiny Asina. And then she's like, uh, fuck no, you're not going to leave me on an abandoned island like a pirate, which is the only thing I associate with mutiny. With a single shot. Yep. <laughs> she's, um, she is Captain Jack Sparrow of the Bang- Bangladeshi political world. Uh, and then the, in 2010, the Supreme Court of Bangladesh reformed secularism as a fundamental principle of the Constitution. Yep. So when we see like religious tension here too, it's like the government is really trying to be like, government's secular. Leave us out of these political tensions. And then people who are causing political tension are like, fuck you. We're going to cause as much uh, political problems or religious motivated problems as we want. Uh, and then uh, the war crimes mobilized pub- public opinion in favor of secularism, which was manifest in a March 2013 Sha- Shabag pro- protest. And then a huge Islamist mobilization took place at the Hefazat-e-Islam group in 2013. So that's like what's coming up in the news. I remember seeing this several years ago. It's actually only coming back to mind now, is that students who are proponents of secularism are being attacked on the street. This is where the 
the terrorist attacks are really uh, focused is on people who are like pro-secularism and it's starting small and the government is, you know, in the center of it as governments often are. And so, and this note is, in 2015 and 16, Bangladesh saw an increasing assassinations targeting minorities and secularists, including Hindus, Buddhists, Christians, Western and Asian expatriates, LGBT activists, Sufi Muslims, bloggers, publishers, and atheists. I think I saw, I read an article about the, the murder of a blogger. Uh, and the country's worst terrorist attack saw the death of 20 people after an upmarket restaurant was sieged by gunmen in July 2016. Then ISIS claimed responsibility because... They always fucking do. Yeah. Uh, and then the Asina government insists that local terror outfits are more likely to be responsible. Um, so, I mean, my personal opinions of ISIS are not professional, but it's like, if anything bad happens, you can take credit for it without anybody proving that you didn't do it. And it's just what terrorists do. And so the Hasina government's like, yeah, that's kind of what's happening. So that basically takes us up to today. Um, there's still small, stale terrorist attacks happening. Um, it's still a very extremely population-dense country. Oh, yeah. Uh, and uh, Khalida Zia, I don't want to call her my girl, even though I'm inclined to. I'm like, yeah, my girl Khalida is uh, still in jail because she has been, she was tried and convicted of embezzling like $200,000 from what was supposed to be an orphanage. Uh, oh no, Kalia. Yeah, and she's like, it's "Well, this is way. yeah, this is a politically motivated thing. This is bullshit. I didn't do it." And then everyone's like, "Well, Kalia, we kind of think you did." And she's like, "Well, yeah, because my arch rival is the fucking prime minister." And then they're like, mm. "But the orphans." But what about these orphans, Kalita? And so, I mean, I don't have an opinion on it because I've just been reading what I've been reading, and I'm not Bangladeshi. I don't know the deeper. No, I. I historical histories of this but anyway that's what's happening in Bangladesh. <laughs> i can't remember hearing about in any other country on earth and i'm sure there are oh also so i want to say me. this a rivalry but, between yeah. hasina and Kalida is called the battle of the begums the begums yeah i don't know what begums means let's look it up you look up begums i'm just gonna my point is the exact same thing almost is that like, i can't think of another place on earth where there's two female heads of state jostling for power back and forth as the prominent political figures yeah and that's like i uh, it means a Muslim lady of high rank. Battle of the Begums. Which, um, it's awesome. it says also the title of a married Muslim woman equivalent to McMrs. They're kind of like. That's kind of awesome, yeah. Um, yeah, but like, even like, it's just so interesting because like, we look at other, like, America's never had a female president. Um, much less two prominent yeah, female politicians two. jostling back yeah. and forth in any kind of I can't, field. Yeah. yeah. So it's, it, and it seems like they don't, there's like definitely different conflicts and different ideologies between the two um but yeah so anyway let's uh take our first break yep and then we'll come back with our cultural discussion and uh you know stuff like that we'll do it's the thing that we almost always do all right we'll see you then <laughs> Welcome back to the world as we know it. Let's take a trip to Kiki in the flag corner. All right. So I'm going to be straight up with y'all. Flag of Bangladesh, not one of my favorite flags. Um, and we talked about this before recording. And it's only because the red, is what's a, the flag looks like a red disc on a green background. Yeah. But the red disc is slightly off center. <laughs> yeah. No, it's a striking flag and I love it. It's just not centered. Yeah. But yeah. So it's. 
quite bothersome. And it's not even to like one side or the other. It's just not it's just slightly in the off the center. And I actually can't find a reason for that. Um, I don't know. So anyway, but uh, the red center it represents the sun rising over Bengal. Uh, and the blood of those who died for independence of Bangladesh, and then mm-hmm. the green stands for the lushness of the land of Bangladesh. This is based on the similar flag using the Bangladesh Liberation War in 1971, but they had a yellow map of the country inside the red disc, but then they removed the flag. One reason because it was too hard to draw correctly on both sides. So, I mean, that's what it looks like. It's a pretty simple flag. Uh, a cool thing was that uh, in December 16, 2013, on the 42nd Victory Day of Bangladesh, uh, 27,170 people gathered um, at the National Parade Ground, and they made the world's largest human national flag. This was, act- but like the next year, India's like, uh, fuck, no, you don't. <laughs> and they made a 40,000 person flag. But for one year, Bangladesh had the world's largest human national flag they still have the world's largest human national flag in my heart kiki i you know i am rooting for them i think when you have that kind of population density too it's easy to get that many people interested in going because they're like oh just yeah yeah, just going to the market is a flash mob i mean yeah so many people uh so uh we'll we'll send it to brad on to start off our cultural discussion yeah so i have a few points to talk about this kiki got into the interesting history and she talked for a long time so i'm gonna give her a little break um, the main things I have to talk about are um, one thing, which is the the in the news right now. You have the huge student protests in Dhaka, and the other thing I'm going to talk about is this concept of the quote unquote next eleven, or like the upcoming eleven countries in terms of economics that are going to be like the new big powers in the future. So first, let's talk about the protests that are going on. So in Bangladesh, um, I think it was a week ago. You started seeing these images and these like heartfelt pleas on like Reddit and other like social media sites about like there's violence going on in, in Bangladesh and like the news in the Western world isn't reporting on it, but like students are being like victimized and there's lots of violence going on and we are protesting and we need just more eyes on what's going on. And so then you know big outlets started to look into what's going on and sending people there and really finding out about it. The U.S. Embassy was one of the first things, like, in terms of our sphere of knowledge that, like, started reporting back on it. So, in terms, it's been going on there for a little bit longer than we've known about it. So, basically what happens is demonstrations were sparked by the deaths of two students who were reportedly killed by a speeding bus in Dhaka on July the 29th. And this is apparently part of a big systemic problem where um, private bus companies, private taxis, you know, like, just automobiles in general in the big cities in Bangladesh, they are not being as policed as far as like traffic laws as much as they should and then like people don't even have to like have a driver's license with them and stuff it's like kind of this rampant like vehicular chaos going on which a lot of people are killed in fact the who i think says the world health organization says that um like three thousand people die in road accidents in the country each year so that's a lot of fatalities i mean that's a very dangerous um statistic and so students took to the streets in dhaka you know, this is like they have the University of Dhaka there, so they have a lot mm-hmm. of students, and they're basically protesting. Um, we want we want a safe country, we want a safe infrastructure. We need, think there need to be like more traffic laws. Everyone should have like a license when they drive. That kind of stuff. I mean, things that seem common sense to well, most civilized nations in the world. They need just need they just need the things, the oversight to crack down on it. Um, however, you know, these demonstrations took became violent. You know, like authorities were like the police were like they're beating protesters. They were hiring excuse me, like, thugs to come in and, like, try to scare people. And if they saw someone videotaping, they'd 
make them delete the footage and then like destroy the camera or whatever. There's a lot of like targeted violence, like women, and like then you get some really like powerful vi uh, images of like like male uh, students like holding hands, creating like these little like walls around like the women where they walk so they wouldn't be like attacked or anything like that. It's really powerful. Um, yeah, so this is ongoing, just like huge movement of students, young people, not just like college students, like high school students as well, that age, just like calling out for human rights now and like protections. Because once you crack down on students for protesting, it becomes like a like a human rights and a freedom of speech thing. And um, yeah, the the power of, of of Bangladesh's students rising up, and that intersects with the history because the prime minister is still Sheikh Hasina, and she suggested that. You know, it was the political rivals. It was their opposition party that was trying to get the students mixed up, and they were the ones like funding all this. And so now it's a political issue. Um, so yeah, that's going on right now. That's in the news, ongoing, very topical, and it really fits in with our history as far as like these two arms of the politics. And you have a lot, a lot of people. It's all getting churned up together. Yeah, it's like in 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 as we know, like Bangladesh's history as a country, like since nineteen seventy one, they haven't had like a five year period. Oh no, where they could just be chill. No, even with the dictators, it was always like there was a famine, there's a cyclone. Yeah, something always happened. Um. So uh, one thing. So from what we've heard in my history too, political participation for women is pretty good. Uh, they have. Quotas to ensure women's representation. However, gender equality is pretty uh, not so great in the rest of the country because of the high poverty rates. And yeah. we know that poverty um, itself is a woman's issue. That's like a political stance, but guess what? We're students and that's what it is. Um, and so like most jobs for women are factory jobs or they're rural farming jobs. There's just not a lot of time for women to get more economic yeah. um, control. So while we are talking about having like these two women being in charge for the past 20 years, they're not doing the most for the women who probably need it the most, the women who need uh, a leg up. So anyway, I want to talk about, I just wanted to bring that up because it sounds like it'd be cool, but also issues like rape and domestic violence and, um, you know, we're talking about like female students on the street protesting, need to be protected. And they were being specifically targeted. Yeah. It was yeah. pretty horrendous. Um, so, uh, also high illiteracy rates for women, big preventative thing. Yep. And like male preference. Men actually outnumber women in Bangladesh. That's one of seven countries. Wait, so men outnumber women? Yeah. Okay, one of seven countries where men actually outnumber women, which is interesting when you think about it. Is there still a, you may know this off your head, but is there still a caste system in Bangladesh as prominent as in India? I don't know that, actually. Let's look up. Okay. Yeah, you look that up. I'm going to talk about my other, the only other point I had as far as cultural discussion, and this is called the, the concept of the next eleven. So there was like an investment banker and some other bankers, and some economists. They got together and did a research paper, and was discussing um, countries that had the highest potential of becoming, along with like the like the BRICS countries, like uh, um, Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa. Like those countries are are, are known to be like increasingly becoming more economically powerful. These are the other countries that they thought were going to become the world's largest economies in the 21st century, like the ones with the highest potential of growth. And among those, in this next 11, there's Bangladesh, Egypt, Indonesia, Iran, Mexico, Nigeria, Pakistan, the Philippines, Turkey, South Korea, and Vietnam. Um, and so it, I think it's just a fascinating idea about like, like these different researchers use, they use like 
economic stability, political maturity, openness of trade, stuff like that. And um, yeah, Bangladesh is on there. I mean, they have a lot of people. It may be a small country, but in terms of like, you know, uh, developing economies, they're the eighth fastest growing economy in the world. They have they had have a true lower income middle class developing. Um, they don't they have they don't have like one of those low human development indices that like other countries may have that they can be compared to. Um, so yeah, I think it's very very interesting that at least in some respects they can be seen as on the up and up, which I think is powerful for a country with a lot of people. It's good to be recognized and good to have that kind of attention. Yep, as long as they don't sink into the ocean because of global warming. Fingers crossed, Kiki. We're all we're all hoping. Um, and to answer your question about the caste system, based on my uh, two-minute Wikipedia research, <laughs> it appears that it's not very rigid because of the. And so, like when we look at it, it makes sense with the timeline because the influence of uh, Islam pretty early on, um, oh, yeah. and the Islamic principles of like social equality, inf- like breaching into that influence, and also because most people living in the Bengal region were of the lower Hindu caste. Like, they didn't have very many hmm. upper class or, like, highest caste people. They are probably happy to they're share mostly, Yeah, they're yeah. mostly, like, middle and lower class Hindu people. So the ability to, to move around socially with the Islamic people um, in, the, in the past seems to have had um, a pretty uh, equalizing influence. That's really um, interesting. I'm, I'm sure, like, it might be issues in more rural areas where... Hindu castes are more strongly adhered to or like more untouched regions but yeah so it looks like in general not not as much big of an issue cool all right you have anything else to talk about as far as cultural discussion you know not really yeah we covered uh, like we covered a lot of it in the history though yeah we really did um and I think it's cool this is a a pretty new country you know relatively and it's not a little baby like South Sudan, though. You know, little, not little South Sudan. Um, but still a lot of problems. Um, but, like, all the drama. And they've, like, let's really listen to some music before the break, too. Like, there's a lot of modern things going on. Oh, yeah. And, again, a lot of, like, uh, pretty old, outdated things. So, that's that's Bangladesh. All right. Any changes to your familiar, familiarity ratings? Once an episode, it's going to get me. Yeah, um, your FR any FR changes so my FR change I feel like was a little sloppy on this one it was harder for me to get a good, good grasp on it so I'm going to take myself from a 1 to a 3 okay. still a, reason, yeah. a reasonably good jump right? I feel like I get the history but also we haven't done our India episode yet and yeah, there was an elephant in the room yeah so like that yeah <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah and so I feel like a lot of that history I really wanted to do in the India episode, as we know, like a world superpower, and like yeah. that has so much influence around the surrounding countries. Honestly, we'll like learn more about Bangladesh when we learn more about India. Honestly, from what we heard today, I feel like it might have to be like an India-Pakistan doubleheader. Like, yeah, could you do India and Pakistan like a month apart? I don't know. It'd be tough. So yeah, we'll come. We'll cross we're, that bridge. We're when we come we're, to, we're changing the rules of this podcast. <laughs> We're making it up as we go along. So. This podcast is loose and fast. Um, and but if you honestly, if like you liked this more conversational timeline, which I really like doing, I like it when we talk through it. Yeah, and I do just, as well. Yeah, please let us know. Uh, anyway, so what about your familiarity reading? Um, also started at a one. Um, I think I, I mean, I think for the past like four or five countries, it's been a one to four jump. 
But I, I'm going to say, like, I'm going to go to it, too. I feel like having learned about the history, I was like, wow, there's a, so much there I didn't even know was there. So, mm-hmm. just a two. One point increase. I learned a lot, but I feel like unless I truly delve into this country and take a, a, a big interest in it, I'm not going to really grasp it. Well, and a lot of that, too, it's, it's hard to say, like, what modern history is, too, and how the past 40 years have been so unstable excuse me um and there's been so so much going on i mean it's stuff that you would not get unless you were living there or living through it or keeping really good track because it's just so much plus one of your notes said that like one of the um i think it was Hatsina, Hatsina. Hatsina. Yeah. i think one of the times she gained power she had a coalition government with like six other political parties like there's not even there's not even six political parties in America because right. you know there's that kind of diversity and different kinds of like facets. There's a lot going on. Um, it's fascinating. All right, so um, that concludes our discussion on Bangladesh. Bangladesh. Uh, we're going to take. We're going to take another quick break. Just, we, we can power through. Yeah, we can. We can just finish up. So, what's new in your week? Oh yeah. So, um, as far as my world. Uh, for both of us. The world school, as you know it. The world as I know it. Um, so I know for sure that school is starting back next week on Monday. Yes. We're going to see um, how recording a podcast works out when exactly. school is in session. We're going to have to change up. Not Maybe not have to change up. We're going to have to reevaluate our schedules and see what works yeah. best for recording. Um, so that'll be fun because I mean, this is probably, as far as my hobbies go, my favorite hobbies. I mean, it's it's a bright spot in the week to record this podcast. It's really fun. And it'll be fun to take a break from researching. I don't know. Something I've been assigned to do is a part of something I want to do. Yeah, this is like, I think this will be fun because it's like fun learning and not it's, yeah, like it's doing fun readings. Yeah. Um, so school's starting back, which means like inter- internships starting back, things like that. Um, what else? I saw uh, the movie Eighth Grade by Bo Burnham. Oh, I love Bo Burnham. It, uh, the movie was, was. Yeah, I've been a fan of Bo. And then like the movie was really, really good. But what I really liked was. Him having left the sphere of comedy and becoming like a director now, like he made a he made a great movie, but all the interviews and stuff and the media he's talking about it he's done recently has been really really mature and really like I respect how smart he is because people ask him, hey, some of the first like music you did on YouTube was like homophobic and yeah, hurtful, it's deeply offensive. Yeah, it's like how do you reconcile that? And he's like, I recognize that I was a dumb fifteen year old who knew nothing and I've learned and I don't put that up on a pedestal I recognize that it got me to where I am and I incorporate that as from as like maturing which I think is mm-hmm. you don't not a lot of people get to do that that's like one thing I mean in terms of like internet trends is like digging up really old tweets oh, yeah. by like popular people on Twitter or Instagram and then using it against them but I'm like I know I said some really stupid stuff oh, when I was in I high I school I'm like I I feel like when you say that people can't grow past that and people can't learn and absorb these different experiences, like you're you're isolating a lot more people than you think you are just because you want to be the first person to bust someone. So I'm kind of sick of that trend. Everybody get more creative. Use more people's current words against them. People say dumb stuff today. You just you know, and also like if you really don't like someone, you want to get at them, pronounce their name wrong. Huh. Uh, that's my favorite thing. To- <laughs> <laughs> um, what? Like my last thought for that is um, yeah, one thing that he talked about was that when he was coming up, the big thing was like in the early 2000s was like shock comedy. Like, oh my, I can't believe you said that. You get the quick like barking laugh mm-hmm. of like, holy shit, like that person said that and it caught me off guard because it was so offensive and or so like, like penetrating yeah. or whatever, like mean. 
but like we've evolved into like comedy and things that we like today they had to be like more empathetic and understanding they had to be like more rooted in something clever something that make, make you, makes you think about it as opposed to something that mm-hmm. just like bashes you in the head with it there's like this um, Netflix comedy special I think it's called Nanny or Lynette yeah Lynette. with Hannah um, Gatsby Gatsby yeah. I can't remember and it's her like, name, like why I'm quitting comedy or something and it's yeah. very very good and it's like it's funny but so insightful and like yeah, I don't know, like that's something I would recommend anybody watch if you like comedy it's, and you like. It's really smart. good. I remember I watched um, it. It was like late at night, and I thought it was going to be pure stand up, and it turned out to be like half stand up, half like her yeah, doing more like, like talking in her story, and, yeah. um, which I appreciated. Um, super powerful, yeah. Another one of those like revisionist kind of here's stand up, here's what you know it to be. Let's look at what can actually accomplish. Um, cool. Yeah, that's my world, Kiki. Well, right. What have you been reading? So. Y'all know I fucking hate sports. I really do. But actually, I downloaded this book just kind of on a whim. And it's called Bear Town by Frederick Backman. So he's a Swedish author, and it's a book about a Swedish town in which hockey is, like, the town's, like, cultural bread and butter. Yeah. It um, sounds terrible. <laughs> like, like, I was thinking, like I'm, I'm absolutely not a sports person. I didn't know what it was about when I downloaded it. I just thought, oh, yeah, Bear Town. Maybe it's, like, I actually thought it was a nonfiction book at first, like, about, and I thought it was about America, because I don't read back covers. I just go for it. <laughs> um, so, I Wait. guess, like, the plot is, like, it's this very small town in the middle of the woods, um, and it's kind of, it's a dying economy. People are, you know, all they have is the high school hockey team, specifically the junior team. Wow. Um, and there's one young hockey star. He's, like, promised to make it great. He's so talented, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and this is, it's, it's a nonfiction book? You know, it is a fiction book. Okay, sorry, sorry. Um, and it, like, tells the book from many perspectives in the town, like the coach, the coach's daughter, um, the the one woman who runs the bar, and how they're all affected by this, because at the climax of the story, the hockey star rapes the coach's daughter. Jesus fucking Christ. She's, like, 15 years old. And everybody in the town is kind of writing on it because they think that these boys are going to win the junior championships, that there's going to be a hockey academy built in town, that it's going to draw business, it's going to re-stimulate everything all because of this one boy's success. So when he rapes her and she comes to out with it, I mean, it comes down on her more than him. It's fucked up. Um, yeah, so it's kind of like it's, I mean, but it's very realistic when it comes to like, mm. Uh, if we think about campus rapists, college students, if you read, uh, what was it? Wait, they're, they're in college? No, these are high school students. Okay, yeah, you said that. But I was thinking, um, there was a book by John Krakauer, which is nonfiction. It's called Missoula, Rape and Justice, and and the Rape and and the Justice System in a College Town, um, which is about, basically, campus rape at the University of Montana and, like, the football team there. So there's a lot of similarities. I mean, it's really rooted in in the fact of culture and and women who have been sexually assaulted and and accusers, especially with powerful young men. Yeah. Uh, but like the way that the author like expresses all this kinds of like I guess like I understood it and like the author affected me in like such a way like it felt like heartbreakingly incomplete in a way that like I would read it again wow um, so anyway that was called Bear Town by what was the author I said Frederick Backman definitely recommend it um, and that took up like a it was pretty lengthy, um, so I didn't read much else. I did read Dark Places, a, G- a Gillian Flynn 
book because I'm like I like Gone Girl is one of my favorite books. Brad knows this. I quote it yep. all the time, especially yep. when I'm dating Gone people, yeah. and I'm like, mm, I think I'm a cool girl. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm and, reading Sharp Objects right yeah. now for the show. Oh yeah, you finally got it. Um, and then I read Sharp Objects and I really liked it, so I'm like, yeah, Dark Places is going to be just as good. I don't think so. So, Sharp Objects is her, is her first novel, right? Yeah, I think so. And then Gone Girl came next, and this is the third, or what? No, it was it was Dark Places, then Sharp Objects, oh. then Gone Girl. I think Dark Places came out in 2008, and then Sharp Objects in 2008 or 2009. So is it like she had not come into her own yet, and she was still yeah. figuring out how to write? Or... Yeah, and Gone Girl was 2013. Gone Girl's a dang good book. That's a good book. It's a... It's, yeah. Probably one of my faves. And, like, Gone Girl's turned into a movie much faster than Dark Places, or... Sharp Objects was turned into a miniseries. Well, give me the synopsis. What's, the, what's it so about? So Dark Places starts out... Because, you know, like, our girl Jill is all about uh, fucking, us, fucking with us. Yeah. Twist endings and stuff. But it starts out, this girl, she's like 32 years old, and her entire family was murdered by her brother in a satanic ritual when she was seven. Jesus. Yeah. So she... And then she, as like a little girl, was sent a ton of money by well-wishers who want to support this, you know orphan child with no family so she was living off all that money until she's 32 and then her banker's like well it's almost gone and she's like well fuck i need money and i don't want to get a job so she's like reading her mail and this club reached out to her and they're like we're called like the kill club or something like that don't quote me listeners this is just the basic and they're like yeah yeah I get we you. just want to talk to you and she goes and it turns out it's this like true crime enthusiast group that says like we know that your brother didn't kill your whole family and your testimony put him in jail and we need to set him free and then she's like well i was there and they're like yeah you're seven and you were probably manipulated by the police so the rest of like the book is her kind of like going back and getting interviews and doing stuff for money so she kind of finds out the truth of what happened to her family oh shit um, you read the whole thing. And I read the whole thing. So, okay. Don't spoil it. I won't spoil it. But it's so, it, it looks like a true, she's not a detective, but she's being a quasi-detective. Yeah. It's it's true crimey. Which I like. Which, yeah. Because, so, like, Sharp Objects is also true crimey, because she's not a detective, she's a journalist, but yeah. she's still trying to figure stuff out. I think, all, like, I, I mean, as a true crimer, our girl, our girl Ms. Flynn is a true buddy of ours. Yeah. Uh, for what I'm currently reading, I've downloaded more from Frederick Beckman, the author of Beartown, and he has a novella, which is only like an hour long if you're reading an audiobook, called And Every Morning the Way Home Gets Longer and Longer, and it's pretty Alzheimer-y, and I didn't realize it when I downloaded it, because again, I don't read back covers, and so once I realized what was happening, I cried right. for like 20 minutes, and I'm Sorry. like, and I, I put it down, I can't, I can't get back into it yet, I need to be in a place where I'm okay to think about people with Alzheimer's, Yeah. which my grandfather had, and uh, many people understand. Sad, yeah. And then I'm currently reading one called A Man Called Uva, which is, a, I think, Fredman Backman's most famous book. I've heard of it, I think. Yeah, and you can read it after me if you want. So we'll see how that one goes. I'm not really sure what I know of the plot yet, because I did just start it. But Oh, you know, wow, that's a lot. That's good ones. <sighs> yeah, so uh, getting reading more novels, especially since school starting, I'm like, I need to shut off learning just for this week, because it's my last week of summer break ever, because I don't intend on getting another degree after this. All right, let's wrap this motherfucker up. This motherfucker's getting wrapped. Um, Kiki, can you give the, the good people our plugs? Yes, please. Follow us on Twitter. We're at the World Podcast. Uh, pretty responsive on Twitter. It's run by me. I also have been trying to put more jokes on there to engage more people. <laughs> you can also find us on Facebook, The World As We Know It Podcast. Um, and there you will get updates about our episodes when they're uploaded. Staying on top of that. 
Uh, please give us a review on Apple Podcasts. These reviews help us to get more viewers and more traffic. We do have a new one from a, a listener. Is this um, Polywog one? Yeah, this is Polywog12. <laughs> and Polywog12 says, five stars, learn with friends. Listening to this podcast is one million times better than reading Wikipedia on your own. True that. Uh, I hope that's not a dig. <laughs> Even if it was, I Because we can read it. Wikipedia together. Anyway, it's super informative, and they learn pronunciations and everything with you. Brad and Kiki's dynamic grows superbly as the volume of the music decreases. <laughs> so some good constructive criticism in there. Uh, I'm going to say... Seasoned with tact, Kiki. Yeah, with, with tact. Tact. Yeah, yes. I said tact. I think so with tact. And then I wanted to correct. It doesn't matter. Um, so Polywalk 12, I mean... You sound like an attractive person. Hollywog, five stars. Yeah, a, five stars. That's I'm a hottie. Say like nine and a half, probably. Wow. Damn. Like as close to ten as you can get without being a, a ten. I mean, sarcastically venting my collar over here. Yeah. Whew. Here we gotta turn the fan back on. All right. Thank you so much for turning tuning into another episode of The World As We Know It. Catch us next week for our next country, Lebanon. Lebanon. And until then, be die. die.